Hey everybody, welcome to ARE Live. I'm Mark Tier, the founder of Black Spectacles, and today we're going to discuss um, Mr. Mike Newman's top 10 tips for passing ARE 5.0. Um, after you know you're done uh, tuning into this episode, you'll have a pretty good game plan for tackling um, some of the key uh, sort of parts of ARE 5.0. You'll gain some useful test-taking strategies. Um, and you're going to learn some strategies for answering the new question types, which is pr pretty handy as well. Um, before we get started, if you'd like to attend our next ARE Live broadcast, uh, where uh, we will be discussing everything you need to know about practice management uh, and that sort of side of architecture um, when you take the ARE. Um, that's going to be with Mike and Heather Rivera, our resident architect here at Black Spectacles. Um, you can visit blackspectacles.com slash podcast to register, and during the broadcast, you know, you'll definitely have a chance to ask questions to Mike and Heather. Um, as you guys probably know, in addition to the, our video lectures, we now have online practice exams, uh, flashcards, and our group coaching program. And if you haven't heard already, uh, I'm very excited to announce that Black Spectacles is the first ever NCARB approved test prep provider. In April, uh, NCARB approved all of our ARE 5.0 PPD and PDD study materials, um, including our video lectures, practice exams, and flashcards. Um, we have the other ones um, uh, in, in right now uh, with NCARB, so we'll let you know when those uh, are as approved as well. Also excited to announce that we'll be uh, exhibiting at the A18, um, which is AIA's Conference on Architecture uh, in New York uh, City on June 21st and 22nd. Uh, you know, certainly stop by uh, the expo floor there to say hi uh, and get a free Black Spectacles t-shirt. Um, you'll also get to uh, meet uh, the guy I'm sitting next to here, Mr. Mike Newman. Um, keep your eyes peeled on your, uh, on your email as well as um, if, you're, if you've liked our Facebook page, we'll be posting the specific details about exact times when you can meet Mike. Um, but, uh, but we'll be there, so we look forward to, to meeting all you guys. Um, and I, I often like to remind folks that if you'd, you'd like your boss to pay for your Black Spectacles membership, be sure to tell them about our firm licenses um, for any size firm. Um, whether you work at a 10-person or a 10,000-person firm, uh, we have a firm license to give multiple users access, group admin and reporting and all that good stuff. So visit blackspectacles.com firm to learn more about that. And today uh, we have a special discount on Black Spectacles individual memberships to share. So I'll provide a coupon code at the end of the show. Uh, my guest is uh, Mike Newman. If you don't know him, he's a senior lecturer at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Uh, he's the founder of Shed Studio, and he's um, our instructor for Black Spectacles online ARE exam prep curriculum, uh, which if you haven't already checked out our ARE exam prep curriculum, you can head over to blackspectacles.com to watch any of the free videos um, and, and so forth uh, from the courses. Today we'll be taking questions using the GoToWebinar question box, uh, as well as on Twitter using the ARE Live podcast hashtag. And so with that, I'll hand it over to you, Mike. Okay. Um, so first of all, uh, coming to meet me at the architecture conference, uh, AIA, sounds really horrible to me. But okay. <laughs> uh, I hope to, hope to meet a bunch of you as you, uh, as you come by. Um, I, I, I bet you've got better things to do. But come on by. We'll, uh, we'll chat. Um, so first of all, this is the top 10 tips for passing. Uh, we have 10 full tips here. Um, and therefore, we're going to have to kind of blitz through this pretty fast because it's going to take a, a significant chunk here on each of them. Uh, so uh, if anything, if I skip something, you have a question, make sure you send the question along. We'll try to get back to it. Uh, the other thing to say is that when we talk about tips, 
Um, you know, a couple of these tips are just big general ideas. They're sort of the sort of overarching concepts uh, and uh, strategies and things like that. And then a few of them are ones that I just want you to know that there are some areas that are easy to study for and you should definitely know. And we'll talk about kind of the basic parts of you know, what those things are uh, so that you can easily get through because you just know there's going to be 10, 20, 30 questions about uh, those topics through the span of the different, uh, different exams. So th these, these different top 10 tips are quite, quite different from each other in terms of kind of what they're trying to get across. Uh, another sort of important thing to say here, um, and this is probably goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, obviously, you're not going to just go out and pass the exam from listening to the top 10 tips of passing the exam. Uh, this is going to, the idea here is to help you go out and study to then go pass the exam. Uh, you know, the exam is a really weird exam. It's a very long exam. It's a uh, very frustrating experience. Um, it's, uh, you know, millions of potential questions that you might get. Uh, not quite millions, millions, but maybe probably 100,000 potential questions, something like that. Um, and you'll actually get, you know, uh, hundreds of, of different questions. And, you know, there's nobody in the country who could answer all of those hundreds of thousands of questions correctly. Uh, so if you happen to get a whole bunch of easy ones, the ones you happen to know, you're gonna pass it easily. If you happen to get a bunch of really hard ones, you might not pass. Uh, so part of what we're talking about here is just how to be realistic and how to not worry about things too much. Um, so in that vein, we're gonna jump right into our first uh, of the uh, top 10 tips here, and it's don't panic. So I know this sounds like I'm being sort of jokey, uh, but in fact, this is probably the most important thing that we'll talk about for the whole uh, podcast here. Uh, I've had many, many students uh, regarding the ARE coming into live classes, doing stuff like this and talking over uh, digitally and, and uh, emailing uh, back and forth. Uh, and the biggest problem that people run into uh, is not that the exam is hard or anything like that. Obviously, it's hard for everybody. Uh, it takes a long time and you, know, you have to find a lot of uh, resources and you have to get your money together to pay for the exams and all of that. So there's all kinds of things to be sort of annoyed by with this exam. But if you start to panic, it becomes that much harder. Uh, quick example, uh, many years ago, I had a, a student in one of my live classes uh, that had, this is back in 3.1 and the exam was called pre-design and he had taken pre-design nine times and failed it and he was a really smart guy, really nice guy, really smart guy and uh, we, you know, did the lectures, we talked through all the different possibilities, all the different things uh, that were going on, we talked about all the, the topic areas and then we did some mock exams and when we did the mock exam uh, I watched him do the mock exam and he would, you could see his, his pencil hovering over the correct answer and then he would go to a different answer. And I finally talked to him about like, what, what are you doing? And, and he said, you know, they're, they're trying to trick me. They're trying to, they're trying to you know, he, he had just become this sort of crazy man in, <laughs> about, like in normal everyday life, he was completely nice, normal guy, but in the exam, he was panicking. And so he was making problems for himself. He was worrying too much about things to the point that it was actually ruining his ability to pass the exam. 
So like I said, there's a million, no, it's not a million, it's 100,000, let's say, possible questions you might get. If you get a bunch of ones you don't happen to know the answer to, well, you might fail that one. Okay, if you fail it, eh, we're gonna move on. You're gonna take it again. You're not gonna worry about it because who cares? I mean, it costs a little bit of money. It may be a problem here or there for one reason or another, some time and things like that, but it's not a big deal, right? Don't panic. It's gonna be fine. You're gonna get through it. So that's the A number one thing. Just reduce the anxiety level. Let's move on to number two. Yeah, maybe, maybe actually. So one thing we've been studying here at Black Spectacles is, is test anxiety. Yeah. Um, it's actually a thing. Um, people do get freaked out um, um, and they yeah. get really anxious about this. And, and like there are like tact uh, strategies and tactics that you can take to basically chill yourself out a little bit right. and take it easy. I mean, and go in, frankly, like with a mindset about being confident and that you're gonna pass this thing and you're gonna run into some questions you don't know, but who cares? Those are dumb questions. Yeah. Um, you know, well, it's I'll almost you, about attitude. Absolutely, I'll give you another sort of stupid but um, actually meaningful, weirdly, uh, example. Um, and that's, uh, if you haven't been to the testing center before you go take the exam, you know, sometime the week before, if you're driving to it for the exam, drive there, know where you're going to park, have an, you know, don't fret about the cost of the parking or whatever it is, just like pay for the parking, make it easy, know where, they, where you're going to go, know what you're going to do, like am I going to wear my coat or are they going to allow me to take the coat in, like know what the rules are, mm -hmm. don't bring any, your phone with you or anything like that, like leave it in the car, locked up in the car because yeah. Like you don't want to go through a crazy moment where they're going to like take your phone from you and you're going to start panicking again. Like just know what you're getting into. And then when you go do the real thing, all right, all of that anxiety, uh, how, does it take 40 minutes to get there? Does it take 20 minutes to get there? Like you've yeah. already figured all that out, right? And you can do that about everything, right? Yeah. Just remove all of that anxiety to the extent you can. It's funny, like almost the opposite way to say this is to kind of pump yourself up um, and, and like, it's interesting. I realized that's something that I would do when I would go to these and take yeah. these tests is sort of pump myself up like I'm going to smoke this test. I'm going to wear my lucky socks. Right. I'm going to wear my lucky shirt and I'm going to show up 20 minutes early and I'm going to be on time and I'm going to be this is going to be awesome and I'm going to have my favorite thing for breakfast and like just like all this sort of psyching yourself up that you're going to do great yeah. so that you don't um, let this anxiety thing kind of go away. Yeah, so two quick things to say about that. One, I'm a little disturbed that we both have lucky socks. Wait a minute, um, they're not the same ones. I hope they're not the same ones. Um, but the other thing to say, and I've had this conversation about a million times, taking this exam is annoying and crazy and takes a long time and costs money and all of that, but I guarantee you it'll make you a better architect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if you just focus on that part, like, oh, this is cool, I'm gonna learn about contracts, or I'm gonna yep. learn about um, how uh, uh, site planning and orientation, how that you know impacts uh, room design on the inside, you know, that if you just sort of see it as, hey, this is cool, mm -hmm. it'll make a huge difference. Yeah. And then, you know, you pass, you don't pass, it doesn't really matter, you'll pass eventually. So uh, it's all going to work. And by far, most of you are going to pass on the first shot on all of these things. So, okay, we're going to move on. All right, number two, find the right resources. So there's a couple of different uh, versions of this, uh, what I mean by resources. Um, uh, and one of them is sort of the obvious things like uh, the books that are out there. There's a bunch of guidebooks. Uh, there's a bunch of other sort of specific books. 
So I'm going to just sort of jot down, uh, find the right books, and I'm going to give you a couple of quick examples. Uh, the Meeb book, which would be Mechanical and Electrical Equipment for Buildings. This is by far the driest book you will ever, ever read. In fact, you're not going to read it. You're just going to use it as a reference. You're going to scan through it, look for things that uh, you don't understand about systems and how these things work. It is the go-to Bible for that stuff, and everything is incredibly well explained if you just kind of go through just the parts that you need to go through. Don't try to read it from beginning to end. You will not live to tell the tale. Uh, but Meeb is a great uh, useful tool. Another incredibly useful one is the Architects Handbook for Professional Practice. I can pretty much guarantee that the Architects Handbook for Professional Practice will be the direct source for probably 30 or so questions. You are bound to get uh, quite a number of questions that come directly out of the uh, handbook for professional practice. Things about contracts, things about working with clients, things about insurance, uh, things about uh, the ethics uh, of the um, expected ethical understandings that the AIA produces. A uh, whole series of different uh, possibilities. So those two books, I think, are incredibly helpful, along with all the other guidebooks and you know regular sort of uh, things you might you might find. Uh, another sort of thing I would definitely take a look at is all of your Qing books. You know, most of you probably have some Qing books left over from school. If you don't, somebody you know does. Uh, if you don't uh, have that, go buy them. Uh, essentially, Qing codified the way that architects uh, talk to each other uh, and to other people. And so the exam, uh, the people who wrote the exam all used Qing when they were going through school. It's just a very useful set of books. Uh, the obvious big one is, uh, build, um, what is it, Building Construction, um, I forget the exact name. Uh, but there's a bunch of other ones. There's a very good book on uh, how codes work. There's a, a series of other uh, Really fantastic books, so absolutely check those out. Graphic standards, uh, there's many other books uh, like that that you could get some really good information. One of my personal favorites, although it's a less important one, but I like it a lot, is called Sun, Wind, Light. Uh, it might be the other way around, it might be Sun, Light, Wind, um, which talks about orientation and site conditions and topography and things like that in a really simple graphic way. So find your resources that are going to be uh, sort of good for you to sort of track down a bunch of this information. But there's a bunch of other resources as well. Like one of the things that happens often, I'll be talking to somebody and they'll say, oh, you know, I'm taking this, I'm starting to take the exam and I just don't know what I'm doing, I don't know where to start. And I'd say, well, do you know anybody who's taken the exam recently? And they say, yes. And I say, well, have you talked to them? And they say, no. It's like, well, go talk to them. Go start a conversation. First of all, because you get information from that. But second of all, they probably have some of these books. They probably have some of the stuff. Maybe you have something they need and you can share it or something, right? Find your resources. So talk to your friends. Uh, think about people who you are working with. Uh, maybe somebody who you don't really know has taken the exam recently. Or maybe there's just some of the older folks and the people who've been architects for a bit of time 
uh, that don't have any idea that you're going through it and don't know to sort of help out. Uh, now, one of the things you'll find is that not everybody is going to be great at helping you get through this. So, you know, you don't necessarily want to get advice from everybody. But there's going to be plenty of people who you work with who are really useful and almost every architect had a, you know, a thing about getting through the ARE. So when you go up and you say, hey, I'm about to do this thing, I'd love to talk to you about it, they will all say, sounds great, let's go get a cup of coffee, or let's go sit in the conference room. So find your resources. You have the resources already. Uh, if you not, aren't working right now and you don't have those resources or none of your friends have gone through it yet, uh, well, then find other resources. Another good example would be your local AIA chapter. Uh, here in Chicago, the AIA uh, Chicago chapter does a great job of setting up, uh, having resources available, setting up meetings, all kinds of things. And then AIA in general has a whole series of different uh, things called like emerging professionals and a, a series of different uh, events that they run. Those are great places to start not only getting actual information, but also meeting other people who are in the same boat. You can start sharing uh, all of those things, uh, all those books and all of that. So the books, the AIA offices, your friends, uh, you got uh, people in your office. Uh, and as Mark mentioned, one of the things that uh, a lot of the different offices will do is not everybody does this, but a lot will pay for part of your exam or they might pay for some of the books. They would prefer that you are a better architect. They want you to go through this process and learn more. So they may pay for some of your exam, they may pay for some of your resources, they may pay for a class. There's a whole series of different possibilities. So don't wallow around, find the resources and start moving forward. So a couple thoughts here. Um, so these are awesome, Mike, um, and I can't, couldn't agree more about um, you know talking to your friends, talking to folks in your office, AIA. Um, and one thought here is you know when you start reaching out to people in your office, you know hint hint reach out to your manager or their manager, um, you know the owner of the company or the, or some of the principals and let them know. Ask go ask them for some feedback like hey I'm thinking about taking the test and like you know tell me tell me your experience and that's going to do two things. One is you're going to probably get some good feedback. But two, it's going to signal to them, right, that you're taking your professional development seriously as well as your profession Absolutely. seriously. It's going to make you look really good um, and, um, and make them think highly of you, I suppose. It might also give you, maybe thirdly, it might give you a little bit of cover, too, because, you know, it takes time to do the studying yeah, you, and take tests. And so you, you may need to leave at five every day for a couple months. And or sometimes, something. like, you know, you're, you can tell your project manager. Um, who you're maybe working under, but sometimes it might also be good to tell the principal too because may, sometimes your project manager needs cover as well. And so right. when the principal sort of knows, that's helpful. Um, one other thought here on the books is, as Mike said, um, these, are, these are the books. Like these are, in fact, I'm quite sure that NCARB references them yeah. in their exam guides. Um, one thing we get out here a lot is that people can get really kind of confused. Like that Meebs book is probably six or 700 pages. In fact, I know we have at least one copy here in our office yeah. and it's holding up a monitor, it's so big. Yeah. Um, I think I have three versions yeah, of right? it over the like, time. Yeah. We, have, we have all those, of course, here. Um, and so I, I might sort of put a disclaimer on that. Um, there's so much really, really, really highly detailed information in these things. People can really get freaked out by the amount of information in here. So just to sort of reiterate, what Mike is saying is these are the references, but 
Um, you're not going to you're not going to read them from beginning. If you're to end. if that's what you're hearing from us is that we're saying that you know you should read all these, that's not what we're saying. But instead, these are the the references. Um, in fact, that's actually what um, and I'm going to sort of brag a little bit, if I may. We do really well here at Black Spectacles, in particular with Mike's uh, lectures, is we help cut through all 5,000 pages and really kind of get to the the things you need to know for the exam. So, you know, we have one of the questions here. Uh, in fact, there's a variety of questions about getting these books. Um, and like, uh, you know, having too many materials can get confusing. Is there a way to tone it down? The answer to that question is, yeah, yeah that's what we've done with the, the lectures is um, simplified it um, because uh, the thing that we always like to joke about is NCARB is not testing you on everything in MEBS, but instead oh, they're yeah. they testing you on, a, on minimum competency. Um, which is a very thin layer of, of what's covered in a lot of these books. So these are the ones that you want to have around uh, for occasional reference, but if you're reading all of them, it's, that you're probably going way too deep um, yeah, no, absolutely. based on what's going and, on in exams. The, Meeb, the big advantage of something like Meeb is you see in a guidebook or a reference in a question somewhere to something and you're like, I don't know what that is. Well, you have an easy place to look it up, right? That That's yeah. where it's truly useful. Yeah. And then when you're looking it up, you look at some of the graphs or some of the photos and you're like, oh, well, I see, I, I get this. I, yeah. I know what it is. I don't need to spend any more time on it. Or I have no idea what this is. I'm going to read that chapter and then I, I'm focused on my use of it so I'm not just like wallowing in it. Yeah. And you know, actually as a reference, and I'm only, we just recently encountered someone and someone was telling us, yeah, you know, I spent like a thousand dollars on all these books and then I just stared at them because I just couldn't like read them and I just was yeah. sort of overwhelmed. This is one of the big advantages of videos. I was going to say, this is a, a good example where your AI chapter might be useful. They may have these books. Uh, they may be at your library. Your firm might have them. So, and I know how I'm the same way. Like sometimes I'll go and I'll go buy a bunch of books to start the process. I'm putting quotes around that. Um, <laughs> but you're really just sort of like kind of uh, procrastinating. Um, so um, keep, keep that in mind as you're thinking about this. Yeah, and then one last thing about this, just to kind of get back to the, the office thing, is first of all, your office probably has these books sitting somewhere. They may, have, yep. they may have forgotten where they are, but somebody's probably got them. But the other thing is, if you have a big enough office, if there's you know, 15 people or 20 people in your office or it's bigger than that, there's probably a couple of other people going through the same thing as you are. And if you can kind of band together and you go to your, to your main boss and you say, hey, look, we're, we really want to do this. Uh, we need some more resources. Uh, could you get us an office resource of Black Spectacles? Or can you buy the series of books from this or that, right? That uh, it's not just you alone. Find those people around you. OK, be strategic. Now, this seems, again, sort of obvious. Uh, but uh, I find that I have to really be uh, conscious of telling people to actually sit down and write out a plan. So the first thing is know what you need to know. So licensure is done by state, so know what your state needs to, to have for you to get licensed. Know the process. Every state is subtly different. For the most part, they're all pretty close these days. It wasn't that long ago that they were quite different. Uh, but now they're all sort of pretty similar. So know what you, what's needed. Know how the rolling clocks work. Know uh, kind of uh, that you've got all your paperwork all aligned, that you've got your transcripts in the right place. So you just kind of get all that stuff so you can focus on the real part. But the other thing is, like, make a real plan. So, all right, I'm going to give you a quick example here. Uh, so I talked to somebody, this was a few years back, 
And she said to me, all right, I've made this plan. She had this whole grid out. And she said, on Sundays, uh, I'm going to watch videos uh, in the morning, and then I'm going to do reading in the afternoon, uh, and then I'm going to do flashcards after dinner. Uh, so flashcards and then reading. Uh, and then on the train ride in, I'm going to do uh, videos. Uh, and then at lunch, I'm going to do some reading. Uh, and then they're working at these other times. Uh, and then uh, there's going to be videos after they have dinner. Uh, and then flashcards at night. Uh, and then that went all the way through the whole week. And then on Saturday, they were going to do whatever it was, and they had a couple different things, uh, and then the flashcards again. And I looked at this, and I said, are, like, do you have a boyfriend? Do you have a family? Do you have, like, this is not a plan. This is, this is a, a recipe for failure. You're going to go through one week of this, and you're going to miss a whole bunch of these moments. And you're going to feel like, oh, God, it's not working, right? That's not the way to be, right? Find a plan that makes sense to you, that works to you. Think about it realistically. Like, uh, you know, maybe you watch all the shows on Sunday night, so you want to leave that open. Uh, maybe you like uh, Sunday brunch. I mean, okay, maybe you keep a couple of hours on Sunday. So, okay, we're going to keep that one. Uh, maybe we really like the idea of doing like uh, videos on Tuesday and Thursdays on the commutes. Uh, and then maybe on Monday and Wednesday uh, we're going to do some reading. And then we're going to find uh, some reading time uh, in these other spots. And then maybe we're going to keep Friday completely open. Uh, and then maybe we leave Saturday night completely open. Right? Find something that's going to actually be believable for your schedule. Right? Uh, so you're making something that's actually going to work for you. Don't make something unrealistic and then feel bad about it. Right? That's actually part of that whole don't panic thing. Don't create situations for yourself that you can't then sort of follow through with. And then equally, sort of think through, uh, be strategic about how you're going to take the exams. So uh, I'll give you one example. A, a former student of mine, friend of mine, uh, Charlie Kletcha, who a couple of years ago was the AIAS uh, president, decided he was going to take uh, seven exams in seven days. So he had all of those exams. Uh, and he started about three months, I believe, uh, before and studied uh, for all of the exams for the three months. Uh, well, OK, that's an interesting way to go. Uh, that not everybody is going to have the the sort of mental uh, capacity uh, for that, and it's a little intense. Um, but it's doable. He did it, um, and that's fine. Maybe somebody else, maybe what you want to do is maybe you're going to study for a month, and then you're going to take one exam, and then you're going to study for another month, and you're going to take another exam, and then you're going to take a month off, and then you're going to do it again. You're going to study for a month and take one exam, right? Is that what would work for you, right? Well, maybe it's... You can see we could do this forever, right? So find the pattern that makes sense for you, that leaves open your real life, that gives you space and room to, to really be able to hit this full stream. Uh, and you know, there's nothing wrong with doing them uh, two at a time or three at a time or something. 
Uh, some of these actually go together quite well. Other ones are really more standalone, and you can decide maybe I do those separately. So think it through uh, and have a game plan because that's going to be uh, hugely important for you as you go through. So knowing your resources and then finding a way to sort of play it out. And um, uh, this is really useful, Mike. One thought. Um, uh, so Clay's going to share this in the chat, uh, in the chat box. He's going to share a link to, we have this uh, sort of six-month study plan, which takes a shot at kind of breaking down all the content that we have in our exam prep um, and breaks it down into how you might, you know, get through that in six months um, if you decided you wanted to pass one exam, let's say, or take one exam every month. Um, so um, something you can use as sort of a starting point. Um, but this is really, this is really a, good, a good insight. Mike. Yeah, and it's also one of those things, remember, um, this is where I get to say, when I was your age. Yeah, you uh, always you want know, to get one of those out, uh, don't you? You know, when, back in the day, I, I took it the last time it was a pencil and paper exam in the mid-90s. And, um, you know, we took four exams, or excuse me, uh, I think it was nine exams at that time. Uh, it may have been eight, um, but I think it was nine exams. Uh, we took them in four days. Um, and so you studied a whole bunch and then you took them and you either passed or you didn't. You waited a year to take it again. Like, if everybody you know who's the sort of upper management all were able to take all of their exams in four straight days, you can do it in four months or five months or ten months or whatever it is. You might choose instead of it being waiting a month, maybe you do it every week for a while and sort of test it out. And the other key thing to understand about being strategic and making a plan is you make the plan in order to start, but then you reanalyze it. You go through a couple of weeks of it, try it out, you, you take one, like maybe you need to take time off after every exam because you're just that's just how you are, right? So make a plan, then be willing to change that plan if that's what's necessary. And I'll just say, guys, one of the reasons why this is such a good insight is I think the biggest kind of thing we hear from people who are having a hard time getting through the exams is the fact that you can take them whenever you want. Yeah. And people get distracted, and they kind of make a plan, and then they sort of forget about a plan, and then they never get back and to it. And their friend's getting married, and so they put yeah. it off, and then you got that big project. And like, you know, you're always going to have your friend getting married. You're always going to have a big project. It's just, it's just how it goes. Yeah. So you got to, you got to, you have to actually sort of stick to something. Yeah. I can't recommend it enough. Make a commitment to yourself about getting through the exams, and then you know, stick to it as best you can. That's going to be that's that's the biggest problem we hear. Yeah, and you know, you don't want to. You're not trying to berate yourself. You're just trying to give yourself a tool, right? Yeah. Cool. All right, hang on here. All right. Okay, question strategy. So um, this is the other sort of concept. And uh, again, this is a, kind of like don't panic. This is one of those ones that's going to sound like I'm being silly. Um, but it's actually hugely important. Uh, when you get a question, the, the, the thing that you're answering, you're not answering the question, you are answering what you think NCARB and AIA think the answer should be, right? Now that sounds sort of ridiculous and it's kind of a court, like every exam is like that, right? Like you, if you have a, you're in college and you take, a, take an exam, of course you're answering what you think the professor wants you to answer, right? But this is one of those situations where it's quite literally that. Many of you will have been out in the field for a couple of years, maybe many years, uh, and you may have a lot of experience doing things in a way that is not the sort of classic AIA, NCARB way to do something. For example, 
Uh, you go on a job site and you see a dangerous uh, uh, trip hazard or something, you might say, hey, uh, you know, that's a bad idea. Somebody, somebody's going to trip on that thing. Well, technically, you just absorbed all of the liability on the job site for uh, site safety, which is the GC's liability. So from an NCARB standpoint, if there's any question about site uh, safety, the answer is, I see nothing, I know nothing, it's not my place. That's the GC's place, it is not me as the architect's place to say anything about that. Now it might be subtly more complicated than that, but it won't be much more complicated because they are really trying to make that point that that's the contractor's world. So uh, the question is not how we do it or how I learned or uh, what would be the smartest thing in order to keep everybody safe or anything like that. The question is, what does NCARB think this, the right answer would be for this one, right? It's a hugely important aspect uh, to kind of how to start thinking about what's going on. And then a couple other quick things to say about um, uh, kind of question strategy. One, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to go deep into it, but one of the things that was very interesting, we talked to uh, NCARB quite a while ago, uh, about a year or some ago, and they talked about this triangle of uh, sort of different aspects uh, of how questions are thought through. And the big part of the triangle is just stuff that, like memorization, you know. Uh, how factoids. Factoids, <laughs> how many inches are in a foot, right? You know. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, we'll call that F for factoids. Um, uh, and then there's a bunch of stuff that's more about, okay, it's not a factoid, but it's about sort of the ability to understand a situation. Uh, so you've got kind of uh, a level of saying, all right, here's some information. I understand what this stuff is. It's a little more complicated. It's not just a straight memorization thing. It's a, a bit more complicated, but something that I have to sort of know multiple pieces of information to really be able to understand. And then there's another level, which is kind of more like analysis. Uh, they use a couple different terms, but I'm going to call it analysis where it's not just that I understand these things, but I have to be able to do something with it. I have to be able to say, all right, I understand this and I understand that, and now we're making a priority between them and we're choosing one or we're combining them together in some way. There's something that I'm doing with that information, right? So you can imagine questions which are, uh, how big is an acre? Uh, something like that. Well, that's a factoid type question. You can imagine questions that are about understanding. It's sort of about, uh, you know, here's a situation with a certain kind of building and here's a HVAC system. Does that HVAC system seem to make sense for that, for that building? Or in an earthquake, uh, does this building shape, does it make sense in, in this context? Right, that's sort of about understanding. But then there's a sort of analysis where I'm taking those kinds of questions where it's saying, all right, we know there's the earthquake, what should we do about it? Now we're actually kind of analyzing it and going through it more deeply. So supposedly, they're kind of getting rid of, have gotten rid of all of the factoid type questions. I think that's probably not totally true, um, but essentially, it used to be filled with little things and people would come out complaining like, wait, I have to know, you know, uh, some random, you know, that a fathom is six feet um, in order to become a licensed architect. That doesn't make any sense. You know, and so they've kind of removed those things and they're really focused on these two. You may have noticed that I left off the top and this is the create. That's where 
kind of design is, right? And you'll notice that I'm not talking about that one and I'm not talking about the factoids. All the questions are really gonna be in this analysis and understanding zone. So it's important to sort of grasp that that's really the key. They're not gonna ask you to really design anything. Anything that you're gonna have to think about from a design standpoint is really more of an analysis type question. So don't fret about it. You kind of understand where these questions are coming from. Uh, think about the strategy from that standpoint and what the NCARB folks are really looking for as an answer. All right, we're gonna talk real quick about some question types while we're talking about question strategy. Uh, there are three types uh, of new questions under the um, uh, 5.0 compared to the 4.0. Uh, the old exam, which is either already dead or is about to be, no, is it still going? Uh, uh, thank you, Mike. That's a perfect time for my uh, public service announcement, which <laughs> okay. is that ARE 4.0 is almost done yeah. on June 30th. That's the last day for ARE 4.0. Yeah, Thank you. That's my public service <laughs> public announcement service. for today. Much. Wish you all the best of luck. Uh, so the uh, 4.0 is dying. If you haven't started your exams, it doesn't matter anyway. It's dead to you already. It's just for people who have had started in it. So in 4.0, we had uh, multiple choice, regular kinds of questions, individual questions, and then a series of vignettes, which were these complicated drawing things that would take 10, 15, 20 minutes, sometimes up to an hour and a half. So there were these sort of computer drawings in these sort of odd ways. The vignettes were always a little weird. They got rid of those and they said, this isn't the vignettes aren't really terribly good at de depicting life as an architect. And so they came up with the hotspot, the uh, dragon place, and then the case study. Now we talk about case studies elsewhere, uh, but the gist of the case study, I'm just gonna talk about real quick is, let's say you get 80 questions. So you've got a whole bunch of uh, individual regular multiple, multiple choice questions. And then maybe I get 15 case study questions. So this is the case study. Uh, and what that means is there's a series of information, sort of tabs, that are associated with that case study. So maybe it's a, a piece of code, maybe it's a detail, uh, maybe it's some information from what the uh, owner is interested in. Maybe it's something about uh, the zoning, something like who knows what the question could be about anything. So there's a general scenario for each case study. And then there's a series of questions that regard that general scenario. Uh, you might have one case study. You might have two case studies. Uh, I think these days there's a lot of twos, but I think that's because they're testing some of those case studies out. Uh, so you can start here and go through all of these individual questions and then get to the case study. If you want, you can jump ahead and go straight to the case study. And then when you're done, go back and do the individual questions. Uh, either way is totally fine. Whatever works for you is, you know, you wanna, while you're taking your first couple of exams, you wanna be thinking about how you like to do it. Now, if it was me, I would just start at the beginning and go. And the reason for that is one of the dangers of the case study is some of that information might be actually quite lengthy. And it's a situation where you're not expected to read it uh, from beginning to end, you know, you might get 40 pages of code or something like that, but you are expected to use it. 
And if you start with that, my worry, this is what I would do, this is why I'm worried about it, is this, if I was in this situation, what I would do is I'd start finding myself reading information that I don't need to know. Uh, and so suddenly I'd be halfway through the exam and I've only done the 15 questions uh, that are in the case study. So uh, for me, I would just start with the, that first bunch of uh, individual questions, however many they are, uh, and just blast through those. And then with, with the time I have left, kind of use that if I have 40 minutes left for those last 15, well, okay, now I know how much time I have to spend going through the information. I can be more strategic about it. So that's how I would do it. But like I said, test it out for yourself uh, and try uh, doing it your way. And one other thought here that I know you're kind of uh, assumption you're working off of is just to remind everyone, every question is it's, weighted exactly the same. Yeah. So a case study is not worth more a case study question is not worth more than a regular question. So why spend, you know, why get lost in a way, uh, kind of trying yeah. to get the case studies right. Just get all the 80 and get the majority of, of, of the questions knocked out and then you'll have some time for the case studies. Exactly, yeah. So, um, and the numbers are any, for a case study anywhere from probably 10 or 12 up to like 20, 22 or something. My guess is that most of them will probably be about 15 to mm -hmm. 12 to 15, something yeah. like that. Um, I, th I think they're still deciding whether they're gonna have fewer fewer questions per case study and then multiple case studies or whether they're going to uh, have more questions. Like they're testing out a bunch of different possibilities uh, in this first couple of years of, uh, of 5.0. So that's case study. That's kind of replacing the vignettes. But then there's these other two, the hotspot and the dragon place. Now we're not gonna spend a lot of time on this, but we're gonna do a quick little uh, ex sort of experimental thing here. And I'm gonna show you a couple of examples so here's an example of a question uh, that is uh, a hotspot type uh, question. So up here. And actually just one note yeah. here. So this is actually from our Black Spectacles practice exams, um, which is designed to look and feel just like the real exam. In fact, we worked with NCARB to make sure that we had to use the same plugins um, and had the same user interface so that highlight, strike through, calculator references, all that stuff at the top, including what Mike's about to show you is all, it's literally the same web technology. So it should look and feel the same. Yeah, and you'll get a, a question. So up here, the question is, identify the top of the hill on the topographic, topographical survey. So clearly what it's trying to get across here is we have 460 here, uh, we have 475. So this is 460, 465, 470, 475. Um, now, on the exam, uh, the real exam, my guess is they would actually always have, uh, on a topography, they would have all of the numbers. But if they didn't, you would be able to know, like they wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't be 460 and then 460 again, and then, like they're not gonna trick you in some way, right? This is telling you kind of what's going on. So the question is, where is the top of the hill? Well, there's no way we can be, you know, 100% sure where the top of the hill is. We don't need to be 100% sure. The point of this uh, uh, drag and drop is not that there is a single point that is exactly right. It's that there's an area that is in the zone of correctness, right? And so quite obviously, here's the top of the hill. So we have this last uh, of the uh, contour lines. And so if we put our top of the hill exactly right just inside uh, that contour line, that's probably not right because it's probably taller more towards the center. It probably goes up and then back down. So uh, technically, 
uh, we're you know right next to the contour is probably not right. But if you put it anywhere in this sort of central zone, uh, you're going to be right. And on our version of things, it's actually going to tell you right away. And there it is down at the bottom where it says correct. So you can kind of see, like, as soon as you make a choice, you can see that. Unfortunately, they're not going to do that on the actual exam. That's just to help you uh, sort of through the process. So that's a drag and drop. And you, one of the things I like about this example is that it sort of gives you that sense of, all right, anything in that area, like you don't have to spend time like measuring where the exact center is or anything. That's not the point. They just want to make sure you understand what topography means, right? That's really the basic idea of it. Uh, now, one of the things you have to be a little careful about is if, you know, you could easily have a th situation that Im implies a certain thing, and then it turns out there's another number up here which is now implying that this is actually like a pool in the top, not a mound at the top. So you got to be a little careful about those kinds of things. Uh, let's look at the other one. So that was uh, drag, and, drag and drop. Uh, this one, we're going to actually, uh, in this case, the question is, um, so I'm sorry, that, that was not drag and drop. That was, um, uh, uh, what's the name of the other one? Uh, click in place or something. <laughs> something like that. I'm, sorry. I'm, 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 I totally blew that. But we'll get back to it. You'll see the correct name. Apologies. Um, moving fast here. So uh, in this one, we're gonna, we have, in this case, a series of pieces of information. Uh, in this case, they're words, um, but it could be like a piece of flashing, or it could be a, a, a steel angle, or it could be uh, a solar panel on a site plan, there's any number of different things. In this case, it's words, and we're gonna drag them, drag them into the appropriate spot. In this case, the question is drag and drop the labels uh, into the corresponding location on the diagram of the weld. So this is a weld, so it means there's a piece of probably, presumably, steel here and a piece of steel here. And the question is, what are all of these components? Uh, and you have to take a look at what you have as a possibility. Uh, now, the key ones here, uh, that one right there is the key one. That's the one that really talks about how strong a weld is. Uh, that's actually the throat, so we're going to throw that right there. Uh, and then we've got uh, a couple of other possibilities here. Uh, this one uh, is the one that we see, and therefore it's the face. Uh, and then we have leg and neck left. Well, interestingly, not all of these have to be used. Uh, and that one's going to be leg, and then that one's going to be leg as well. And look at that. We got it correct. Um, so you can see this is a little bit more complicated, a little bit more movement, but it's still very simple. There's still, uh, even if it's something like uh, you're going to place the solar panel and the whole point of that is that you're not putting the solar panel in the shadow of the building next door or whatever it is, right? There's going to be a, a number of places, a, a, a relatively wide circle of spots where you could put it, or it's going to be relatively simple in concept like this one is. So don't overthink it. Uh, these are relatively simple ways to answer questions. The rest of the questions are just going to be the standard, uh, like here's a question and here's A, B, C, and D as possible answers. Uh, there's a few fill in the blanks. Those will almost always be numbers. I think always be numbers. Uh, and uh, so there's a couple of different types of questions. But for the most part, most of the questions will be in that kind of fairly standard way. Okay, know the contracts.
this is one of those things where a lot of young architects don't really get any opportunity to think about contracts. It's just not where your time is spent. Um, and yet they're hugely important in terms of understanding the kind of work that you should be doing and uh, when that work should be done. So uh, I'm going to make some quick recommendations about how to think about the contracts uh, and then uh, recommend that you go read the contracts. But before you read the contracts, think about what we're saying here. So first thing to know is project delivery. That's the way that a project gets done. Uh, this classic standard uh, is design, bid, build. So we design it out. Uh, we have a contract with the owner. We, they pay us to design the building. Uh, we get to the end of that process. We bid it out to a number of bidders. Uh, and then one of those bidders becomes the GC, the general contractor. And so they then build it. Design, bid, build. There's a bunch of advantages, a bunch of disadvantages, it takes a long time, but you get a full, fully designed thing before you actually get any pricing. So there's some advantages and, and disadvantages in different ways. Don't get it confused with design build. That's a very different one, but also you'll probably get a couple questions on. But generally, when we're talking about kind of a standard, like if, if it doesn't say the project delivery, you can be pretty assured that it's design bid build. It's this sort of basic standard way. It's probably 60% of the time or something like that uh, out in the field. So we have design, bid, build, and then we have our sort of classic triumvirate. We have the owner, uh, and then the owner uh, hires an architect, uh, and so there's a contract between the owner and the architect. That's gonna be the B101. Now there's actually quite a few different variants off of this. There's the B101, the B104, the B107, et cetera, et cetera. The one you would want to sort of read through is the B101. Uh, once the architect has gone through the design process, has you know, shown the work to the owner, have gone through that whole thing, eventually you're going to bid it out, the B, the middle B of uh, design, bid, build. Uh, and now we've chosen a contractor, and so the owner is going to have a contract with the contractor, with the GC. That's going to be the A101. And again, there's the A107, A104. Uh, the ones that you were going to focus on are going to be the, the 101s, though. Now, is there a contract between the architect and the contractor? Well, no, not technically. There is no contract between the two. However, in these other two contracts, there is this reference set of documents called the A201, the general conditions, which are referenced into the B101 and the A101. And in that A201, there's quite a bit of description in the A101, for example, about what the contractor should do that involves the architect. And in the B101, when it references the A201, there's quite a bit of description about what the architect should do that involves the contractor. So even though you don't have a contract with each other, you are in a contractual relationship with each other through the owner and through the fact that the A201 is referenced into these, uh, these two others. So there are like 50 or I don't know, 100 different uh, AIA contracts and the exam will only be about the AIA contracts. There are other contracts out there but they're not gonna confuse you by putting any other ones on there. Um, uh, there are many, many different contracts. There's contracts with uh, consultants, there's contracts with uh, all sorts of other uh, 
subcontractors. All, all, everybody who's part of this has their own contract. Uh, and then there's a bunch of different project delivery methods. There's uh, construction manager, there's design build, there's, there's a whole series of different uh, systems. So there's many, many different contracts. Uh, the more you read, probably the better off you are. But what you absolutely should read is the B101, the A101, and the A201. That will give you the really pretty good idea about how all these things work. And then note that around the contractor, there's a series of sort of satellites around the contractor, which mostly are going to be the subs. Around the architect, there's a series of satellites, which are mostly going to be referred to as consultants. And then there's a bunch of people who are around uh, the owner. And so they have their own contracts and their own relationships. Uh, and the sort of obvious question here, and there's a few that, are, that talk to everybody or talk to more, more than one. Um, kind of in the interest of time, I'm just going to use a couple quick examples of how you might want to think about this. Imagine uh, the uh, ductwork subcontractor wants to talk to the mechanical engineer. Uh, should that uh, guy go over and talk to the mechanical engineer? No. Why not? Well, because he's not following the contracts. He should talk to the contractor, and then when uh, he talks to the contractor, the GC should talk to the owner, uh, and then the owner should talk to the architect, and then the architect should talk to the mechanical engineer, with the following exception. The whole talk to the owner part, the owner is is the layperson in this process. So you're following the contracts, but that's actually not helpful. So instead, we're going to use the A201 for our system of conversation, and we're going to leap straight across. So the, the subcontractor talks to the GC. The GC talks to the architect. The architect talks to the mechanical engineer. They then go back through, talks to the architect, talks to the GC, talks to the sub. Now, that sounds like a terrible idea because it's probably going to be a you know, game of telephone, you're going to lose something in the process. So maybe you do it as a conference call, or maybe you do it as a sit-down meeting where everybody's at the table. But it's really important that everybody's at the table because everybody has different pieces of information. So if you just had the sub talking to the engineer, the sub might say, well, hey, I can, you know, do this a, a different way and we'll save a bunch of money. Uh, but for all you know, uh, that might add a week to the schedule, and the contractor may have just had a conversation with the owner where the owner said, whatever you do, don't make the, make the schedule later because you know, we're desperate to get in. And the sub and the engineer don't know that. So it's really important for that contractor, for that GC, to be part of that conversation. But equally, maybe six months before GC was even chosen, the owner may have said, you know, our other building has this type of uh, ductwork. Whatever we do, we hate that. It doesn't work. It's noisy. We don't want that. So the architect may have some information that the GC never, nobody ever told the GC that the owner specifically said, don't use this. But the architect has a piece of information. So you follow the contracts with that one exception of jumping across from the GC to the architect because that's how it's described in the A201. So very important to sort of understand if we started drawing out design build, this diagram would look different. If we drew out the uh, construction manager, it would look different. You should be able to sketch out what these relationships look like. One thing to note here is Mike and um, one of our friends from Schiff Harden, uh, you guys uh, did a, uh, mm -hmm. an Airy Live podcast on this, I think in March. Um, yeah, we just posted a link. Two mics. Yeah, we just posted a link in the chat box and go to webinar so you can find it there. 
Um, of course, you know, there's much more detail uh, covered in the, the video lectures that we have, but you know, we did a, um, uh, a sort of an overview of contracts in that ARE Live podcast, so you guys should check it out. Yeah, and it's a really important part of the exam. So, okay, real quick, uh, you're looking at the B101, it's about ideas. So it's the design intent. Uh, if you just read these contracts, you're gonna get very, it's just gonna look like a bunch of contracts. So you have to understand what they're about before you start reading and then it'll make sense. So design intent is about ideas, it's about uh, meeting codes, about meeting programs, all of that. What the A101, the contractors, the GC and owners uh, contract is about is making those ideas manifest, right? So this is about building. It's about making the thing. So this contract sounds totally different. It's about the means and methods. It's uh, how is it gonna get built? It's gonna be what the schedule is, what the uh, site is like. All of that is gonna be in the contract between the owner and the contractor. Uh, the V101 between the owner and the architect is gonna be all about thinking and design intent. So the standard of care for the architect is, did you do a reasonable and prudent job? Uh, did you do something that uh, any normal architect in the context of this type of building in this type of place would have done a similar set of decisions? So again, this is not about beauty. It's not about uh, making the best building or the most environmental building. It's about competence. Uh, the exam is only about competence. It, a contract can only be about competence because uh, there's no way to sort of contractually say it's the most beautiful building in the world. That doesn't really even make any sense. Uh, so what it says in the, the B101 is things like the architect will endeavor to do something. The architect will act reasonably and responsibly because these are about design ideas and that's the best that you can do under that context. When you look at the a101, the contractor will complete, right? The contractor will complete, will achieve, will produce, right? Those are really different terms than the architect will endeavor to. And that's because these are very different contracts, even though they look very similar. So once you know that, it's relatively easy to kind of read through them and then the A201 to really find all of that information. All right. You know structures. So here's the deal with structures. Everybody freaks out about structures because you got a bunch of calculations, you got all kinds of things uh, that you, you're worried about, right? So imagine you walk up and there's a ditch and there's water in the ditch and you're standing there and you want to uh, walk across and you have a board. You're gonna put that board across the ditch and you're gonna walk across it. Are you gonna lay that board flat or are you gonna have it be vertical in section? Well, the obvious advantage of laying it flat is I'm gonna have a wider surface to walk on. But if I lay that board flat and that's a relatively long distance, it's gonna buckle down, it's gonna bow down. Now maybe it's strong enough and it won't break or maybe it isn't, right? But if I put it vertically, it's gonna be much, much stiffer. Right? This is something you already know. This isn't anything radical, but this is how beams work. Right? Where does the material want to be? 
Well, in this case, the big advantage we have is we're getting a bunch of material up at the top and down at the bottom. So in other words, we're getting material as far away from the neutral axis as we possibly can. So if we started looking at what an I, which is the moment of inertia is, that's just a number that tells us, if we start looking at all of the, oh, wow, it was terrible, rectangle. Um, if we start looking at, all right, this area is a certain distance from that neutral axis, and then this area is a certain distance, and then that area is a certain distance. So each of those have their own dimensions. And so we get the area times that dimension. So obviously we're getting essentially zero out of the part because we're timesing it by zero uh, that's right at the neutral axis, but we're getting a much bigger number for these parts that are way out here at the edge. So the really key parts of our structural capacity here are as far away from that neutral axis as we can reasonably make it. So when we were looking at this board and trying to decide which way we were gonna put it flat or we're gonna put it upright, the realization is if we do it flat, if we do that long, thin, flat thing, we have very little material far from the, from the uh, neutral axis. And then on the bottom we have, again, very little material far from the neutral axis. But in this one, we have a whole bunch of material far from the neutral axis, and it's farther from the neutral axis than this other one was. So we knew that if we laid it flat, it was gonna bend a lot. We knew if we laid it upright, it was gonna be much stiffer. We already knew that, and in fact, that's all that the moment of inertia is telling us, right? It's already stuff you know. The trick here is you have to start thinking about it in the language of engineers. So when you see a formula, when you see a term, don't just try to memorize the formula or memorize the term. Translate it back to your language, to an architect's language, right? I'm looking to make this stiff. I'm looking to make it uh, not want to bend, right? Well, this is how we're thinking about that. And we could look at through section modulus and a bunch of other uh, ways of thinking about it. But those are just numbers ways of talking about things that we already know. Don't make it more complicated than you need. Another quick example. Uh, all right, here's our column, and that column is 12 inches tall by four feet in diameter. And I'm gonna put a big weight on that column. Is that column going to buckle? Well, obviously not, right? This is concrete, let's say. Uh, there's, there's no physical way that a column that stubby and that big could buckle. It's just this just doesn't make any sense. It could crush, the concrete could fail, right? But it's not gonna buckle. All right, let's try another column. Let's say I've got a column that is, uh, how about three inches in diameter and it's 700 feet tall. I'm gonna put a big load on that, uh, on that column. Uh, is, am I gonna crush the material there? Well, no, obviously not, right? I mean. There's no way it doesn't. There's no way I'd ever be able to load this thing in such a way that's three inches in diameter, 700 feet tall, where I would ever get to the point of crushing the material because it's going to buckle way before that, right? It's going to it's going to bow way out uh, before it does anything else. So we can tell right off the bat that this column, what the issue is, is going to be buckling. We can tell right off the bat that this column, what the issue is, is going to be 
whether the material is strong enough. So there's going to be a bunch of uh, columns that fall into that category. There's going to be a bunch of columns that fall into that category. And then there's going to be these sort of unfortunate ones that you actually have to do both set of calculations to figure it out, right? Again, none of this is rocket science. Now, understanding when, you know, the exact line that you start to uh, apply this or uh, how the exact formula works, right? you just have to fit it into how you already would think about columns, right? All right, one last quick example. Uh, we just talked about deflection. I'm going to do, there's uh, our delta. That's 5 WL to the fourth, 384 EI. So when we have that beam and it starts to bend, let's say it's a, a beam uh, with a brick wall above and it's over a set of uh, a glass wall. Uh, so we're trying to make it, we don't crush the glass. We're worried about the deflection. Uh, and it's a relatively long beam. And what would make it deflect more? Well, the W is that distributed load. Oh, I'm just going to do that all the way across. Uh, so that's the W. So it's some number of pounds per linear foot. The L is the length. So that's the L. Well, what would make this deflect more? Well, we could increase the, the load. We could use a heavier brick, or we could use uh, you have more floors above or whatever it happens to be. If we increased uh, that W, if we made this load heavier, it's likely to bow more. And that delta is the difference. That's the deflection. So the delta goes up when the numerator goes up. Well, what else would make it deflect more? Well, we could make it longer. Maybe there's a column here. And instead of, we could get rid of this column and we could go even farther. So now our L's even bigger. Not only is it the L bigger, but we're doing it to the fourth. That would make a huge difference. So that would make it deflect more, right? Again, the numerator, the top part of the fraction is going to go up. All right, well, what would make it deflect less? Well, we could make it shorter. So we could put another column in, make, sort of bring that L down. We could reduce the W, the weight that's above it. We could use a material. Instead of saying use, maybe using wood, we could use steel. Well, that's going to make the E much, much bigger. So we're jumping the E, which is now in the denominator, which means that the bottom of the fraction is going to get bigger, which means the overall deflection, this overall delta number, is going to get smaller, which totally makes sense. We use steel. It's going to deflect less than if we were using wood. Or if the eye, that thing we were just talking about, the moment of inertia, that thing that's about the shape, so the E is about the material, the I is about the shape, right? If we use a shape of our beam that is a better, stiffer shape, uh, so maybe instead of it being uh, like, that, maybe we do something like that. So I'm getting more material farther from that neutral axis, right? So I'm getting a higher 
moment of inertia. So I'm increasing, again, the denominator. So I'm making the denominator bigger, therefore the delta is smaller. So this crazy looking formula that when you saw me write it out, you probably thought, what the heck is he doing? 5 over 384, WL to the 4th EI, like what is going on here? This is actually completely understandable, right? We make the thing longer, it's gonna be harder to keep it from deflecting. We put more weight on it, it's gonna be harder to keep it from deflecting. We put less weight on it, it's gonna be easier. We make it shorter, it's gonna be easier. We use a more uh, robust material, it's gonna be, uh, be less deflection, it's gonna be more stiff. Uh, we use a better shape, it's gonna be more stiff, less deflection. That's all this thing is saying. So this is all stuff that you already know we're just talking about it in a way that engineers can get a number out of it. So don't panic about structures. It's more doable than you think. All right, moving on. We're a little late here, but we're gonna try to speed it up. Uh, number seven, on the exam, no one cares if you're a brilliant designer. Uh, this one I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on. This is just a basic thing that you should understand. This is not about design. It is not about beauty. It is not about being the best. It is not about any of those things. This is about being competent. And no more than that, right? If you are stopped in the middle of a question and thinking, well, you know, it would be better if the planters were put in this situation because it would look more beautiful, they just get up and walk out. Because <laughs> like, you're thinking about, you're, you're being a, that's not about competency, that's about design. It's about beauty. That's not what this exam is about. Right? Uh, if what you're thinking is, all right, this question, they're looking for me to answer in this way, that's the, that's the correct answer because that's the, the logical, contractual, uh, straightforward, NCARB way of thinking about it, done. Right? Not about design, don't even try to make it about design. Hashtag minimally competent. Minimally competent. Like that's what we should write Yeah, about. and remember, like the intention here is we're not putting, we're not making it so that people can become, uh, like you're not becoming licensed to show the world that you're a brilliant designer. This is meant to be out in the world in such a way that uh, you've got a few years of experience before you start being hired out by clients. You should be minimally competent so you can get through the project, right? I mean, that makes sense. All right, run a tight ship. A whole slew of the questions are going to be, uh, all right, uh, there's, a, there's a project that's going on, you're running your teams, you've got consultants, you've got the owner, you've got the GC and their subs, uh, there's a question about X and how are you going to answer that question? Uh, and inevitably the answer is going to be, we're going to answer that at our bi-weekly meeting. It's regular. There's a process. Everything is straightforward. There's a design log. You've gone through, you've made all of your, uh, your process clear. There's very good communication. Uh, so when I say run a tight ship, what I'm really talking about here is uh, it's not, you're not flying by the seat of your pants. You're not just making design decisions on the fly you're reviewing them, you're getting sign-offs, you're finding a system that works for everybody, uh, you're making it so that people can talk to each other, you have a, a straightforward way of kind of making these things happen. So who's doing the meeting minutes? Well, it might be the GC, uh, but it's not a bad idea if it's you. Uh, so meeting minutes, 
design logs, which means you're logging every time something changes in the design. Client calls up and says, hey, I don't like that part. Could you change it to this other thing? Right? You're logging it down. And part of the reason you're doing that is just so that everybody else on the team knows it. But the other part of the reason you're doing that is four months from now when somebody says, wait, why the hell is the bathroom door opening that way? You go back through your design log and, oh, there it is. The client asked for it. Right? Uh, so that you're not only keeping things tight in the moment, but you're keeping them tight in the long run, which is where uh, litigation and other kinds of problems can, can come up, or just helping people understand how the decisions were made. So uh, third-party reviews, uh, showing the work to somebody, maybe on staff, um, but somebody who wasn't involved in the project so that you get uh, a good chance to sort of look through the information. Always be coordinating, so I'm just gonna say cord, uh, with the program, with the budget, with the code. So you're always looking back to see, well, we wrote this in the program, are we still doing that? Uh, our original budget said X, uh, are we still there? When we did our code analysis back at the beginning, we thought this was gonna happen. Is that still in play, right? So at schematic design, design development, all of those things, you're always coordinating back to those things and you're logging those changes through the meeting minutes, through the, meet, the regular meetings, uh, through all of those uh, uh, chances of communication. You're making sure that everybody is part uh, of the communication process. If you find that you have gone through uh, an entire process uh, and you're you know, about to bid everything out and the client has never really signed off on your design, uh, that is a terrible situation to be in. Uh, and it's happened to me. It's one of those things, it's easy to happen. Like you just start rolling along and you just you know, never had the moment to really sit down and go through it and they, they think, oh yeah, you're a good architect, it'll all be fine. Uh, but uh, you have to formally go through it so that they have the opportunity to say, oh wait, no, that's not what I meant, right? Okay, uh, one quick aspect of that is understand how those meetings change over the span of time. So in that first phase of the design, these are meetings with the, your team and then meetings with the client. So there's the client and then your team again and then you're meeting with the client again. So they get a chance to sign off and the team is sort of this constant meeting pattern so that everybody has a chance to have, to see what's going on and to have input at the appropriate times. And then the same thing is gonna happen again at the construction phase. You're gonna meet with the GC and with the client. Everybody has a chance, it's regularized, everybody knows when it's coming. That's how the exam is going to ask you about it. There, I guarantee you get 10, 15 questions that are essentially the same question, which is, uh, you know, how do we handle this situation? And the answer is gonna be regular meetings or take good meeting minutes or use the design log or something very simple and straightforward about regularizing the process. Before we move on there, uh, yeah. just one thought. Some of the topics you just touched on uh, will probably fall under the practice management mm -hmm. um, exam. And just as a reminder, everyone, um, again, in our video lectures, we certainly cover that in tons of depth. Um, but uh, next week or next month, uh, we will be doing an ARE Live podcast on that. Um, I think Clay just posted a link to that. So if you want to register, um, you can do that. Okay, real fast, just to close it out, know the easy stuff. You know how I just said a few of these things back a while ago? Uh, there's the triangle with the factoids and then the understanding and then analysis and then the creation. You don't really need to worry about the factoids. Yeah, I'm kind of kidding. You actually do kind of need to worry about the factoids. The reason you need to worry about the factoids 
is not because you're going to get asked that question, but because you want to feel comfortable that you know what's going on, right? So know the easy ones. You don't have to memorize everything. There's a bunch of stuff that's easy. So uh, you should know how big parking is, right? Uh, you know, parking is an easy one. So you can get a question about parking. And a parking space typically is about nine feet by 19 feet, right? Now maybe it's eight six, maybe it's eight foot, maybe it's 18 foot, but it essentially is gonna be about that. And you can start thinking about it, if you start including the, the aisle way, uh, well, it's gonna be about 350, maybe 300 uh, to 350 square feet per parking space. So if somebody says on a question, okay, you've got 50 parking spaces, you can figure out how big it is pretty damn fast. And you can figure out, does it fit on the site or not, right? Now you can go through and look up in the zoning code and find where it says how big the, the uh, parking space is, or you can just know that, right? You can bring that kind of information to it uh, and just find those sort of easy vocabulary ways. Let me give you one other example and then we'll call it. This is one, this is sort of an obtuse one. I use this one a lot because I think it's kind of interesting and helpful to kind of think about. When you start thinking about vocabulary, you start getting lost in like, well, you're just memorizing the things. But what you want to memorize is what it means, not just the word, but what it's actually telling you. So this is imagine you have two different logs and one you're uh, cutting up as a quarter sawn and one you're cutting up plain sawn. Hope I spelled that right. Uh, and you can see here they are different. This would be the quarter sawn and you sort of divide it up into quarters and then I'm, I'm getting these things parallel to the grain as they're going by. Right? So if I looked at that board in section, the grain would be something kind of like that. Whereas if you see these ones, which are plain sawn, if I take a look at that in section, it's probably gonna look something like this. Well, that's very different. What would be the advantage of the plain sawn? Well, the advantage of the plain sawn is I'm gonna get more wood out of it. In this version, I get all these little corners and bits that I don't get, right? So those become sawdust or particle board or something else. Uh, the advantage of the plain saw is I get a lot of that material uh, put into wood. But the advantage of the quarter saw is when that material starts to flex and to uh, expand and contract, which all wood will, it's going to do it really evenly. And my grit, my pattern is going to look on the face of that wood kind of like straight lines. It won't be perfectly straight line, but you get the idea. And then on the plain saw, probably going to look like that. It's going to have cathedraling, that's what it's referred to as. So this one's going to start to bend and flip in ways that this one just won't do. Because this one's going to stay consistent even if it gets smaller. This one, it's going to tighten up in certain ways. And those lines are going to want to straighten out. And so it's going to start to have problems. So when you start looking at these kinds of, like this is just an example. I'm just using this as an example. We start looking at these vocabulary elements. Right? It's not that you want to just memorize what courtesan is. It's that you want to start to think about, well, what does it mean to me? When would I choose one? How does it work? Why do, why do people care? Right? Uh, we could have the same conversation about any number of those sort of fairly simple vocabulary words. When you see them, you see something you're not 100% sure about, just look into it. 
but try to not get caught up in the way that it's being described. Think about how you, excuse me, how you would think about it, how you would use that information. All right. And there you are. There you go. Good stuff, Mike. Thank you. Um, so um, I really appreciate everything you just shared with everyone. Um, I appreciate everyone who, who tuned in. Um, lots of stuff, uh, lots of stuff. Sorry, it's a long one, yeah. Um, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's really, really great, great uh, uh, range of topics to kind of give people a little bit of, um, a little bit of help. One thing maybe, um, so there's quite a few questions um, uh, that we tried to address as we've gone along here. Maybe one question is, let me, let me kind of combine these together. Um, so let's, let's sort of take two of them. Um, what are your thoughts on, um, so let's say you fail an exam. Mm -hmm. um, what are your thoughts about strategy there? Should you sort of stick with that exam and sort of keep taking it till you pass? Or should you keep going and sort of move on to other exams? What's, what's, what's your recommendation there? Yeah, so obviously the real answer here is you gotta do what feels comfortable to you, right? It's really about that. But uh, if it was my opinion or if I was get helping somebody through that, um, I would keep my overarching strategy the same. Um, I think there's something useful about taking an exam that you failed again fairly quickly because you're still in that mindset. That you know some of these are really quite different mindsets, and so you kind of build as you're studying for it. You're kind of building up to that, um, but you also don't want to start obsessing about it either, right? So if if there's another one that makes sense to take, you know, uh, first before you retake the. I think that's reasonable. Take another one and then get back to the one that you failed. Uh, many people would say, just go through the six, get them done, uh, and then if you fail them, then just go through what's, what's left. That's a completely reasonable way of approaching it. Uh, for one, you'll learn different things at each of the different uh, exams, and that you know something that might have been really useful for a previous exam, you learn in the fifth exam. And so then when you retake that one, you now you have that information. So that's totally reasonable. But I, I, the, the main thing I would say is don't let it become an albatross. Don't, you know, don't fret about it. Just make a decision, have a plan, and go with it. Uh, I would get back to it relatively quickly. That's awesome. Um, a lot of people are thinking about uh, what we've called the five exam plan, where they're finishing yeah. up for ARE 4.0 exams, which again, by the way, um, expire uh, on uh, June 30th, 2018. So after jump that on day, it if you're still doing after it. After that day, it literally doesn't exist anymore. For those of you who are wondering about extensions, not gonna happen. NCARB would laugh at you um, <laughs> because they're so serious about it in a way the last year or so has been the extension. Yeah, and um, they, this is compared to when 3.1 changed to 4.0. They got a lot of uh, bad blood uh, from that one because uh, the uh, transition time was much, much shorter. And so this time they made a very long, it was 18 months yeah, transition right. time. Yeah. Uh, and so they, they've gone way out of their way on this one because they really didn't like getting yelled at. Uh, so it's done now. So for those of you who um, you know, are done with have taken those three ARE 4.0 exams and you're thinking about PPD and PDD, a uh, question from the audience here. Uh, can you speak a little bit about um, the strategy and sort of which order to take those two? Um, yeah, if you're, if you're taking the, the five strategy, um, I, I honestly don't think it really matters that much. Uh, obviously, you have to take the 4.0 ones first, um, the CDNS, uh, construction documents, and the PPP, and you know, um, site planning. 
uh, you have to take those first because you can't transition back and forth. You have, you, once you go from four to five, you're, you're in five. Um, but in terms of the five, um, I don't think it really matters. For the most part though, I would actually take them in order. Like if I was taking all six, yep. I would just start with the one that's about practice management and then the one about project management and then the one that's about the kind of early part of the project. And I think, you know, it's kind of like, um, I always wonder how uh, filmmakers make films where they don't film it in the order of the, the shots. Um, you know, that they film a piece here and a piece there and then kind of put it all together. Like, it just feels to me more logical and you're trying to make yourself feel more comfortable. So I would do the earlier one first and then do the later one. But if for some reason you felt better, like you felt like you knew more about documentation and detailing, go ahead and take that one first. It doesn't, like, I think that's fine. I would just do it in order because that's how I would take it. Good deal. Um, and um, Clay's noting that um, keep an eye out on our blog this week. We're posting a PPD study schedule so you again can sort of look at that content in, in, in a lot of detail and figure out yeah. how to get that uh, uh, knocked out. So keep your eyes on that. So, um, so Mike, I, I so one, one quick thing to say um, is those two exams, uh, like a, a number of them, have a lot of repeat information in them. Uh, in the first of them, you're going to be talking about kind of analysis and design, like uh, looking for information about how to make a decision. And then in the second one, you're going to be talking about, all right, how did that decision Im impact our design or how do we, how do we finalize that decision? Um, so the topics are really similar. Uh, and so kind of thinking of them almost together is not a bad idea. You still want to focus on one and then take it and then focus on the other one, but um, but you know don't think of them as wildly separate. That's one of the things that's really different about 5.0 versus 4.0 is that these exams are actually the same topics. They're just sort of from a slightly different agenda. So think of them together. Awesome. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much. If you guys want to attend our next ARE live broadcast where we'll discuss um, everything you need to know about practice management uh, when you take that exam. Um, we have posted the link in the chat box in the GoToWebinar control panel, so you can just uh, go there and register yourself, or you can simply go to blackspectacles.com slash podcast um, to find it as well. Uh, just like today's episode, you have a chance to ask questions and share your, your answers with Mike and Heather for live feedback during the broadcast. Uh, to learn more about our ARE exam prep curriculum, uh, you can go to blackspectacles.com where you can try out any of the free course videos. And if you want your boss to pay for your membership, which they should Good be idea. paying for, um, visit blackspectacles.com slash firms. Um, share a little bit of information and, and we'll get in touch um, to help you learn more about our firm memberships for firms of any size. Um, we're proud to be NCARB's first ever approved test prep provider. With that recent endorsement of our ARE 5.0 PPD and PDD exam prep products, you can feel um, super confident about um, the content we've put forth and the depth of that content. Uh, stay tuned for announcements uh, for the other exam prep uh, courses that we've got. And don't forget to stop by our booth at A18 um, in yeah. New York City on Come June by, 21st, June 22nd. Uh, we'll probably send you guys an email or you can check out our Facebook page to get the exact uh, specific time to meet Mike. But uh, we'll be there the whole time uh, passing out t-shirts. Our booth is located on uh, the first floor, booth uh, number 4724. Um, for those of you ready to uh, start preparing for the ARE right now, you can use coupon code TIPS6518PC to get a 15% discount for the entire duration of your ARE exam prep membership. Finally, tomorrow we'll send you an email follow-up about today's live broadcast 
So please, you know, share your thoughts and feedback. Um, we read every word that you write and use them to tune our next episodes. So thanks for watching.